What's up, guys? Welcome to the Couple Podcast with your hosts, Matt Chotrick and myself, Peter Fenera. This is a podcast where we talk current health news and hot news topics, one conversation at a time. Thank you guys for tuning in. Check us out on YouTube. We're out on Patreon officially. Go check it out. We have some awesome content for you guys. We got the weekly cup of news. We got the weekly Friday podcast. We got the weekly vlogs. We got so much coming at you guys. Make sure you guys give us a, a rating. Give us all those stars. Make sure you hit that bell on YouTube and leave some comments, guys. What's happening, Matt? I feel like a million bucks, buddy. So in this episode, we'd like to welcome Jason Bolt, DNP slash CRNA. Not only is Jason a nurse anesthesiologist, he, is, he also has a YouTube channel called Bolt CRNA, where he offers mentorship and a behind-scene access to the life of a CRNA. We could, you could also follow him on Instagram at Bolt CRNA. How you doing, Jason? Great, guys. Great. Thanks for having me on. And I love the Bolt in the background, man. It's symbolizing That's right. everything. Were you a yeah. Flash fan? Uh, well, n- not really, but yeah, it kind of looks like it, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah I, it's uh, sweet. Yeah, I was a Flash fan. I, I watched all the Flash on, um, on Netflix. It was a good series. You guys yeah. check it out. That yeah. and Arrow, man. It was good. So, so, Jason, give us a little background about who you are for those that probably don't know. Maybe the journey. You fill in the story of who you are on this show. Sure. So um, I'll start with what a certified registered nurse anesthetist is. That is a anesthesia provider. We uh, function in the same role that uh, when people hear the word anesthesiologist or they go and have surgery and they go to sleep for surgery, they assume that just a blanket term of anesthesiologist took care of them. But a lot of times it's a CRNA, uh, which is what I am. And to do that, you have to have a bachelor's of science in nursing first, and then you have to do a few years in the ICU getting critical care experience as an uh, ICU nurse. And then you apply to a doctoral CRNA program and go through three years of that, graduate, and then become, if you pass boards, then you become an anesthesia provider like I am now. Um, so that is what a CRNA is, and that is what I do. How is school um, finishing bachelor's is probably completely different than going into CRNA school. What is maybe the difference for those that are might be curious in this profession of pursuing, you know, outside of bedside? Yeah, uh, it is very different. I'll say, uh, my bachelor's of science in nursing it for a bachelor's degree, I will say it is hard. I mean, it's, that's one of the most difficult bachelor's degrees. I think you can get uh, the amount of credit hours that you have to do the clinical rotations you're expected to fulfill, uh, the juggling of the pharmacology and the pathophys and the other different nursing theory courses you're taking. It's a lot to handle. So I'm not, I would, I never try and discredit the BSN because I remember how difficult it was when you're 20, 21, 22, juggling all that. And your friends are on the weekends having fun and stuff and you're studying and, and grinding and getting up at four 30 in the morning and going to the hospital and, you know, dealing with sick patients. So that's very hard. Um, but I will say CRNA school is like maybe 10 times harder. Mm-hmm. It's uh, it's just a whole different world. When you get into CRNA school, the level they expect you to master content in and the way they just throw stuff at you at such high volumes at such speed, it's difficult to keep grasp of all of it. And the problem is in nursing school, they give you kind of an overview of a lot of topics and you just hit lots of topics and every semester you change to like PEDS or GYN or, um, you know, mental health, psych, nursing and stuff. So you get an overview of a lot of things. CRNA school is specific to anesthesia and you go very, very in depth to like an atomic level sometimes on topics and in pathophys. So the way you have to master it, how fast they throw the content at you and how 
kind of merciless it can be. Nursing school can be merciless too, but I feel like CRNA school takes it to an even higher level. Like you can't make a C in, in most CRNA programs. A C is an F. Um, so anything less than some programs in 84 or less is an F. Uh, my program, thank God, an 80 uh, or higher was passed in grade. So you could at least, if you made it an 80, you got to stay in. And there's no repeat in CRNA school either. So if you do fail a course, it's an automatic see you later, you know, don't call us kind of thing. And you go choose a different career pretty much. Whereas in nursing school, sometimes they would allow you to come back and repeat the following year, like start the following year's class and retake a course or something. In CRNA school, they really don't have any mercy like that. It's if you, if you fail one class one time, you're out. Jeez, that sounds that sounds very intimidating. And compared to like a bachelor's, you're able to work because I actually worked part time as a forklift operator. But are you able to work at all when you're a CRNA? No, I I worked like 30 to 40 hours a week in my BSN program. And I paid for all of my schooling myself. I worked through the whole program. I paid for my apartment, my living expenses, everything. I didn't take out student loans. Um, I, I managed it on my own. But for CRNA school, I didn't work a single day through the whole thing. There's, there's no way that you would have, um, I mean, that you'll find one or two students out of each class who tries to keep up some kind of per diem or PRN work somewhere. Uh, but even those one or two people who do that, they might do one or two shifts a month max. And that's their little bit of free time that they might've had that month to have spent time with family or to have watched Netflix or done something for mental health. They chose to work to make, you know, a little bit of money on the side, which is really going to be just a drop in the bucket for your $200,000 in student loans that school's going to cost you. So it's not yeah. worth it. Regarding school, is it uh, like a year round program or is it a basic August like to May and then you have the summers off? It's nonstop. So, uh, so like I started August uh, 1st of 2016 and I was in the program constantly nonstop until the end of July, 2019. So it's about three years, just nonstop. You get maybe a week off for Christmas. Um, you get a week for spring break, but here's the catch. Spring break will, they'll let you out of class for the week, but you don't get out of clinicals for that week. So you still have to be at the hospital that week. You just don't have to be on campus doing classwork that week. So really you don't get much time off even throughout the whole three years. For clinicals, do they assign you clinicals or do you got to find like your own CRNA to follow or your own anesthesiologist to follow? That is a great question because a lot of nurse practitioner programs do not set you up with um, rotations or people to follow. They kind of just hand you off. You know, they say you have this many clinical hours to complete, go figure it out on your own and you have to find people to teach you. That is not how CRNA programs are ran. Uh, it would be, it wouldn't be a good idea to expect people to be anesthesia experts and have them go find people to teach them on their own. Uh, the quality control, it would be loose at best with that. So programs do assign mandatory clinical sites that they have already connected with. They already have clinical advisors at those sites. They have, you know, types of cases, whether it's a neuro, neuro site for you, whether it's a peripheral nerve block site that they specialize in or a pediatric site that that, that rotation specializes in. Uh, and your program director will make sure that you do all of these different sites in a certain in order to get all the numbers of clinical hours and the types of various cases you need so you can take boards. So with, with clinicals, um, is there different types of clinicals they, ha they have to do? Is there like 
different like OR clinicals that you have to see or how does that work? Because like you said, nursing school, you get like your, your, your ob gynae, your PEDS. Is that something similar to, um, to CRNA? Yes, it is. Uh, so in anesthesia school, you will do, um, you'll have to do an OB rotation. I actually did two OB rotations that were both two months a piece. So I did about four months of OB, which is mostly like epidural C-sections, um, you know, emergencies that come up in the L&D floor where anesthesia is responsible. Um, and then I did a two month pediatric rotation at a specialty pediatric hospital. So you'll have to get all of your peds numbers. You'll have to intubate, you know, neonates. You'll have to take care of, I took care of some brain tumor cases uh, for, you know, seven year old little girls. And you'll, um, you'll do a little bit of some cardiac. Uh, so yeah, you get a various, you know, smattering of peds cases that that rotation you'll need to do a either a peripheral nerve block rotation where you'll just focus on nerve blocks the whole time uh, or if you're lucky enough that a lot of your general surgery rotations have a lot of nerve blocks that they teach you in you may not have to take a specialty one of that you'll need to do a cardiac rotation where you'll just do like open heart surgeries valve replacements just like big um, cardiac type anesthesia cases you'll do those every day all the time that one is particularly grueling. Um, what else did we do? You'll, you'll usually do some pain rotations or some community health type rotations where you'll be in a small hospital where it may be six or eight ORs, maybe even as small as like three operating rooms in a small critical access type hospital. And you'll start, you'll see how um, hospitals in those areas operate because you'll find that there are a lot of differences in the way that a small three OR or hospital will provide anesthesia and have workflow and the expectations and stuff there will be very different than your large Vanderbilt uh, academic center with lots of equipment and lots of infrastructure. I appreciate the detail. You, you, you like painted the perfect vivid picture of like what it is to like literally be in CRNA school. Um, and I can tell why it's tenfold, right? So I'm kind of curious on what is your day-to-day -day routine as a CRNA, like your start of shift to like end of shift. You could kind of go a little bit into that detail. Sure. So um, it can vary from person to person, but uh, and even for me, it varies from day to day. Like I just got I, I got off work this morning at 7 a.m. because I was on call all night. So I came in last night and at seven o'clock and took off report. And at my facility, when you're on call at night, there's one CRNA on call who's responsible for covering OB and you're responsible for covering the OR. So I came in, I took on report. I found out which patients needed epidurals. I found out which patients we were waiting on platelets and lab results on. I found out if there was anything abnormal going on like HELP syndrome or um, preeclampsia, things I needed to be concerned about. Uh, trial of labor after a C-section, which can be tricky for an anesthesia provider because there's a risk of an emergency C-section that you may have to do in the middle of the night if, if they're trying to give natural birth after they've had a C-section. Um, and then also I was covering the OR. So as soon as I got the labor and delivery unit covered and they were settled and the women who wanted epidurals were comfortable and, and you know, taken care of, the OR had an emergency general surgery case that had to be done. So then I had to go down to the OR. I had to set up my room for that. I had to do a general uh, OR anesthesia case for a patient and then wrap that up, take them to PACU. Then I had to go back to OB, check on them again. At that point, we were good. Everything was covered. Everyone was comfortable. So I went to my call room and, uh, and just tried to rest some, and that didn't last long. So that never lasts long. 
But, uh, but yeah, so that was just like one day, but then the day before I was covering, um, general OR cases. So I came in at seven in the morning and I, uh, went to pre-op and I saw my first patient of the day, which is usually what people do when you have your first case of the day and you're coming in for a normal schedule, you'll go see your first patient. You'll do a whole assessment on them to make sure that they're appropriate for anesthesia that day, that there's no cardiac or respiratory issues you need to know about, nothing neurological. They didn't eat breakfast that morning that, uh, you have, you kind of formulate an anesthetic plan that makes sense for that patient based off the meds they're on the pathophysiology that's happening with them, what the patient agrees to, because you might decide you want to do a spinal anesthetic for this type of case. But if the patient says, I do not want a spinal anesthetic, I refuse, then you don't do a spinal anesthetic. You come up with a different idea. Um, so you do that, you go to your pre-op, you do that for the patient, you get consents for the anesthesia, then you go to your OR room, you set up all the equipment and drugs and everything that you need for the case, and then you'd be in your case. And then that just keeps rolling. Then you, you just keep doing that. You drop the other patient off when you finish the case, go see your new patient, set up your room for that new patient for the next surgery. And you do that until cases are done. What is your autonomy as a CRNA? So I know you have a doctorate, but as a practicing CRNA, you are, you are still practicing underneath a doctor, correct? So when I, when I shadowed a CRNA in the past at my previous hospital in Chicago, there was, I believe, three or four CRNAs and there was one anesthesiologist. So mm -hmm. the anesthesiologist was there at the beginning of the case. He saw the patient getting sedated and then he just left the OR. And then he's available to any of those CRNAs if they need any help, if there's any issues. So how was your experience and how do you, um, your hospital operates? Right. So uh, CRNAs are independently licensed anesthesia providers. So we practice under our own license in all 50 states. The, the thing that people can get a little confused on with the whole supervision stuff is that is usually a billing term in, in different states. And that billing term is, is um, related to Medicare and Medicaid billing for the services afterwards. They ask that uh, in about half the states, they ask that a physician uh, sign supervision over the case so that you get paid for your services. It's not a legal requirement and it's not part of our licensure to practice. It's just if you want Medicare and Medicaid to pay you back for what you just did. Um, and then they don't specify what they mean by supervision. They don't require any specific anything at all. And in fact, a surgeon in those states can just sign an order saying, um, you know, I want anesthesia services from my CRNAs for the day and uh, for a case. And that meets that requirement. So and of course, they're not trained on anesthesia. So they're not truly clinically supervising you at all. Uh, it's just a billing term, really. Um, so yeah, we're not, we're not really supervised in the sense that you mean by physicians, but in my practice, um, I do operate, there is a physician who is over the OR for the day and you do, uh, we call them the driver and you just give them a phone call before you start the case. Uh, they don't see the patient and they don't come into the ORs at all, unless there's something wrong or I ask for their assistance on something. Uh, I'll call them and I'll give them a quick a couple sentences of like, hey, I'm doing a lap coli on a patient who's, uh, you know, an ASA class two, there's no concerns, their airway looks fine, you know, and they say, okay, great. And that's, that's the, about it. Um, and then, you know, you go about your day. And, and that's about all the interaction. What you described was what's called medical direction. Now that is another billing term. 
Uh, and that is a way for, a, if a physician medically directs in the way that you mentioned in the practice that you shadowed in, they're allowed to bill 50% of the profit from each of the four cases that he was attached to or she was attached to. So it behooves them financially to work in that kind of practice because they're making 200% profit for every, uh, these four cases that are all going on at the same time that four CRNAs are running, they're billing 50% of the profit from each of these. And the CRNA is billing the other 50% and retain the 50%. So they're making a, a really great income with that. Um, there's no research that states that that's necessary. And there's no law that requires that for CRNAs. Um, and a lot of practices have moved away from that type of practice just because it's uh, kind of a waste of resources. It's a waste of our, our financial dollars and the medicine system and healthcare. Um, but yeah, so that's what you noticed. And no, that's not our normal practice. And that's not how you're trained in CRNA school to practice underneath anyone else. And you are, you are trained to be a fully independent autonomous provider and able to do everything independently. And there are many CRNA-only groups all across the United States and all 50 states. If you don't mind sharing, what's like um, something that you feel stresses you out because your job or the hardest aspect of, of your career? Because like as nurses, probably the most stressful and hardest thing for us is a deteriorating patient, right? Yeah. Patient has, you know, maybe sepsis, he's hypotensive, you can't get the blood pressure up or blood pressure is up but now they're tacky because they're starting on levo things like that or or even one thing that you, you would change about your career like for me i would love to instill like maybe a handful of nurses or even two or three nurses or somebody that just goes around the unit and just washes patients up for that shift that's what i would implement so like team nursing yeah so basically what i'm asking is is what's like the most stressful part of your job and if you could change something what would you change the most stressful part i would think for anesthesia is the unpredictability of it uh, and I'm sure that you know this from being in the ICU, you have a patient who seems to be doing okay, and then something happens, something shifts, you're not sure what's wrong, the heart rate's up, blood pressure's down, this, you know, things are happening, the ventilator, they're resisting ventilation, especially I'm sure you've noticed with COVID patients in the more recent times, things can just happen and it seems like you're implementing changes and you're trying to do things to fix it, but it's not working and you can't figure out what is the next thing you need to do. Well, in anesthesia, that will happen. There will be times where things just suddenly happen that shouldn't be happening. It's like the patient did not read the textbook and this is not the way they're supposed to respond to this situation and this treatment and they're responding totally differently. You're trying a different method and they're not responding well to that method. And seconds matter in anesthesia and it can mean life or death. And you're completely 100% responsible for anything that's happening to that patient uh, during the anesthetic period. So you have to think of a plan B, C, D, whatever it may be. And you have to think of it quickly and implement it properly. And so that can be daunting. I would say that's probably the most stressful part about being an anesthesia provider and being a CRNA is that you know that something can come up at any time and you need to be able to recall on all that training and all that information, all that difficulty that they slammed into you in CRNA school and ground you down into, you have to be able to remember that, pull it out and use it and save a patient's life potentially uh, in those quick moments. So when you're in the OR and um, you know, you're working the case, are you the one that's intubating the patient and then uh, managing the sedation, paralytics, and analgesia. And, and if you are managing the like sedation and all that, monitoring the patient, do you have like a group of meds that you 
go to as like your 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 first step meds and if then those, those don't work or something happens you have like a like a backup medication how, how does that work like sedating somebody and keeping them keeping them asleep basically Definitely. Uh, yes, that is what an anesthesia provider is. That's what a CRNA is. Um, we uh, take the patient back into the OR. We induce anesthesia. We, we usually connect monitors so that we have heart rates and blood pressures and all these other things. We pre-oxygenate the patient with a lot of oxygen to make sure they're full of 100% oxygen levels before we induce our anesthetic, which is usually an induction sequence of drugs, which uh, I typically like to use on a general healthy patient, there's no contraindications. I'll usually use some Versed, some fentanyl. I'll usually give a little bit of lidocaine. I'll give propofol, and then I'll give rocuronium. And uh, and then you know you mask the patient for a little bit, let the rocuronium, which is a paralytic, set in. And once they're paralyzed, then I you know instrument the airway, which use with uh, I use a Miller two typically on most patients and get a good view. I intubate the patient, connect them to the ventilator, choose a vent setting that's appropriate for that patient in that case. And then I manage the anesthetic throughout the whole time. So yes, that is what we do. And then at the end, I wean everything off, get them breathing on their own again, remove the tube if, if able, and then take them to the recovery room where they can recover and go home. Um, so there are certain drugs that are very common in anesthesia that most of us, I would say 95% of us give frequently all day, all the time but you can't do what's called cookbook medicine or cookbook anesthesia uh, because like I mentioned earlier, patients don't read the textbook sometimes and their responses to certain drugs will be different from what it should be, or they will have something going on, um, you know, physiologically that's happening, that's causing you to either not be able to use that drug or not respond the way you want it to. So you always have to have backups. I would say the most common things we use are like phenylephrine and ephedrine for pressors, vasopressors uh, in the unit. I know you guys are used to infusing like uh, neo infusions and stuff at a certain rate. We don't often use neo. I mean, I do use a neo infusion if I think the patient is going to be long term having problems throughout the whole case and I'm going to have to keep the blood pressure up. But so, in sorry, general, I'll give interrupt. little. Do you monitor? So you monitor both sedation and uh, the vitals too. So you give like pressors yeah. you do like any heart rate meds like metoprolol beta blockers things like that you you do all that yes yeah okay. that's okay. yeah in fact in the or you are responsible for everything happening on that patient or going through that patient system any meds given to that patient anything happening to the patient neurologically physically anything outside of the actual surgical procedure the surgeon is cutting and operating on they're responsible for that of course but everything else going on with the patient is your responsibility so if the, if you wake up and the patient's had a stroke or if there's something gone wrong with the patient at all throughout the case that's your responsibility as an anesthesia provider um, so yeah you're monitoring everything that you can every every you know different measurement if you think you need a bis monitor to measure eeg tracings and things to measure awareness throughout anesthesia you can do that uh, whatever you think is appropriate for that type of case uh, you'll be monitoring that and then you will be making adjustments constantly throughout the whole surgery uh, to to meet what you see uh, either is happening with the patient physically you're seeing with your own eyes or based off your measurements on your machines so, it's yeah. also it's also cool, Pete. Like looking at the um, anesthesia report that they provide, and you see all these like dots and vital signs, and when they give medication, because they're, they're literally doing IV push all the time. 
Right. Uh, so yeah. question. So as an ICU nurse, we have favorites, correct? We prefer maybe an intubated patient over an ETO patient because we could predict stability, correct? Mm -hmm. uh, when I shadowed, uh, this nurse preferred longer cases compared to like, let's just say ob cases, because by the time you sedate the patient, the surgeon's already done and you got to wake them up. So do you have a preference on what cases you enjoy personally as a CRNA? You know, that's a great question. A lot of us do have preferences and you bring up a good point of the, if some people do not like to be in a room where the cases are, are going to be 45 minutes long or 30 minutes long, because you will, by the time you get them asleep and you did your whole pre-op workout uh, workup, you got them to sleep, you secured the airway, you charted everything appropriately for that. Then it's time to start waking them up again. You wake them up, you go see the next patient. It's a constant turnover where you're on your feet, moving, moving, moving all the time. A lot of stress in those types of days. Uh, I like those days sometimes. Now, I don't like those days all the time because it will wear you out. But uh, I like variety. I'm at the point in my career where I still enjoy variety. I still enjoy a day where I'm doing those types of cases. And I enjoy a day where I'm doing a long robotic six, eight hour case that's going to be, you know, complicated. And, um, you know, I enjoy occasional days that are neuro where you're doing neurospine and you're not allowed to use paralytics. You're not allowed to use gas. You have to use, you know, different, it makes you think in a different way and approach anesthesia in a different way uh, to, to, you know, take care of your patients to the best that you can. So I like the challenges at this point in my career. I would say there's not any one case I absolutely hate. There, there are definitely some, I, I will say I don't love, love GI cases, but I have had days that I, I've enjoyed myself in GI too. So, um, so yeah, it's the, anesthesia is the variety spice of life. I, I would say you can do all kinds of different things in our field and you never have to get bored. It sounds like a Long Island, man. Just like a mixture of all the drinks and you just take, take it all at once, man. A little bit. Can you it's touch a little, a little bit, bit like of that, yeah. like your work schedule? Is it like, because as nurses, we do 12s. Yeah. Do you do like 24 hours or how, how does that work exactly? Or do you do like some in-hospital stuff and then you do some outpatient stuff? How does that all work? So anesthesia is a service industry. So what our schedules are really based around what the patients need and what the surgeons need. So you're dealing with a surgical schedule one day, they may only need you for eight hours that day because of surgery cases that are going on. And so you might end up working seven to three that day because they're not running. The surgeon is not running cases all evening, but then the following day he might have, or she might have a long day scheduled and it could be, uh, they may need you for 12, 12 or 13, 14 hours. So you might work quite a longer day that day, but you usually have an idea that it's kind of like being on call. If you know, you're going to be one of the late people the next day, you don't plan to go home early. You plan that that day is going to run a little late. It's unusual to work in a practice that has an exact time out that you will hundred percent get to leave. Like in nursing, it's shift work. So you have, um, you have someone who is coming in to relieve you. So, you know, you're leaving at seven o'clock because there better be somebody coming in to take over your patients at seven o'clock and you know, you're going to get to go home. That's not that way in anesthesia. That's not a shift. Exactly. It's you, you can try and make it into a shift, but there's no way to really tell with the unpredictability of surgery, like if something goes wrong in surgery and it was supposed to only be a four hour surgery, but now it's turned into a six hour surgery, you can't just leave your patient and there's not somebody coming in working night shift or essentially to take over your case for you all the time. 
So it's a little unpredictable. And uh, in my schedule, I try and keep my hours total for the week around 40 to 45 hours. But um, in most practices, try and keep your hours to around that amount. And you're usually salaried. But sometimes I work more than that. And sometimes I work less than that. So it just, so it just all depends, which is awesome. Yeah. I, I am wondering about the culture of being in the OR and what it's like. So as you know, sometimes as bedside you know, we have the fair dose of cattiness and things like that. And, you know, we even hear women. about women drama. Like, it's funny sometimes to think about it. And, you know, we uh, we as both dudes, we kind of just like brush it off and laugh about it. Some people take it way too seriously. So how was like the culture of the OR compared to bedside when you were an ICU nurse? Um, so that's one benefit of being a CRNA is that we were ICU nurses first. So we kind of already, rem I remember what that culture was like. I've yeah. lived it. Uh, and you're right. There is a lot of that. It's a very female dominated career as a, as an RN. And I think it's like 10% male and 90% female. Uh, the, the great thing about being a CRNA is the numbers shift drastically once you go to CRNA school and it's about 50, 50, uh, of male and female. So it's, it, it evens out and that cattiness and that kind of, um, drama is not really a thing anymore. Uh, you're also held to a standard that I think a lot of people, you know, they take it pretty seriously and they try not to bring that kind of pettiness into the workplace and, uh, and maybe hopefully leave that at home. So, yeah, I don't really find that happening much. Another thing is as a provider, you're not working is as an ICU nurse, we all were like a team and we all, you know, had patients and we would be all next to each other. And if I needed help turning, I'd say like, Hey, Sally, come over here. Will you give me a hand? And I'll come help. I'll do your Foley for you in a minute. And blah, you know, you kind of work as a team like that. And in some ways that's nice. And I miss that element. But once you become an anesthesia provider, you're more of like an island. You're an individual provider and you're providing for your set patients and cases for that day. And in, in a room, you know, to yourself, you're the only anesthesia provider there. So your coworkers and colleagues, you try and interact with them. Maybe you'll come give them a break if you have an availability later on. But it's rare for you to both work on the same case or the same situation at the same time. So that cattiness is not even really given the opportunity to happen, if that makes sense, because okay. you're kind of, kind of isolated. It's a little bit more isolated. And I will say you do work in the OR where there is a circulator, there's a scrub tech, there's a surgeon, there's a CRNA. Um, but uh, the cattiness doesn't typically cross over to us. For some reason, we put up those blue drapes when the surgery starts and the surgeon hands us the blue drapes and we put we pin them to our IV poles and we're kind of back here away from, we've got the head of the patient up here with us and we're sitting by their face and we've got our anesthesia machine here and our drugs all behind us here. And we're kind of in a tent a little bit back here. And people just usually, unless we stick our head up above the drapes and engage in the conversation, people usually leave us alone. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. So you're just like your own little independent body of, you know, governing, which yeah. is cool. What made you um, go into a CRNA? I feel like we should have asked this right in, right in the beginning. Like, what made you decide to leave bedside and join the CRNA crew? Good question. Um, I, I actually started my undergrad thinking I was going to be a psychologist because I wanted to help people. My idea was I want to do something that helps people. And I want to get out there and, you know, make a difference in the world. Well, I started working in the ER doing paperwork at 19, trying to just make some money. And I met nurses there and, and physicians too. And I thought, wow, these guys are actually doing hands-on real world stuff, helping people every day. Like people are coming in in bad places in their life, some of the worst moments of their life. 
and they're doing things that are improving them and they're going home and, and having a better outcome and, a, you know, a better, hopefully long-term outcome. And I thought that's something that I want to do, but I knew that I wanted my doctorate. Cause even when I was a younger kid, I knew that whatever I wanted to put my mind to, whatever my career was going to be, I wanted it to be a terminal degree that I invested all of my energy into and really learned whatever there was the, the maximum amount there is to know about it. I wanted to learn all about that career. So I knew I wanted it to be my doctorate at the time. This is like 2008. There was no doctorate for CRNA. And, uh, and so I thought I'm definitely going to do med school and do medicine. And I actually back then thought I wanted to do endocrinology or neurology. So I got into nursing school with the idea that I would do my bachelor's of science in nursing and then go straight into med school right after that and have a background of, of nursing to fall back on in case I ever needed it or needed to make money through med school to pay for school. Uh, I took an, I did an interview. I took a semester off at my nursing program, the summer off and went and did an uh, internship at UAB. And they select 20 students per year to do this internship. And it kind of gives you an unofficial position in their program, unless you bomb MCAT or something, it kind of gets your foot in the door with them. But through that uh, internship, it made me realize medicine was not what I thought it was. And being a physician was not what I thought it was from TV and from just watching and observing other people. I realized it was a lot more than that. And there was things to it that I just did not like. And it was the next semester during my surgery rotations in nursing school where I met a CRNA. And I realized after talking to that CRNA, I was like, this is exactly what I want to do after, after observing them. And the rest is history. I, I said, you know what? I'm not doing med school. I'm going straight into the ICU as soon as I graduate nursing school. I'm going to go to CRNA school, you know, after a couple of years of ICU nursing. And that's what I did. That's awesome. Hmm. What do you like doing in your free time? Like aside from work and just being busy and being a artist of anesthesia. Mm. I like that artist of anesthesia. It, you I, know, it's, it's, it's an art, man. You're mixing drugs. You're putting people to sleep. It's freaking, it's cool as hell, man. <laughs> yeah. Your professors will tell you in first semester of the program, they'll say anesthesia is an art and a science. And it's one of the weird specialties where you actually are just kind of like mixing and matching. It's a little bit like a mad chemist, but also a painter. And you're just, you know, trying to mix it all together and make it work. So I like that. Uh, so what do I do in my free time? I do stuff like this, uh, where I shoot YouTube videos and I try and educate and I try and do stuff on my Instagram and I try and advocate for the uh, profession and, uh, and just help anybody out who wants to become a CRNA because so few people know about it. Uh, that was a big issue that I realized when I started the program, CRNA School. There was not much information back then, 2015, 2016. There was very little information online or public knowledge about the career. And you really didn't have candid people who were practicing CRNAs on social media talking about what they do and talking about the ins and outs and the nitty gritty. You had to just figure it out on your own or you had to meet a CRNA in person who would tell you firsthand what was happening. And so I thought, I'll change that. I'll get out there. I'll put information out there. So to this day, I still do that stuff in my free time. And I enjoy doing that. Uh, I work with the AANA, which is the American Association of Nurse Anesthetists. I'm on the communications committee. So right now we're doing CRNA week. And so I help them come up with ideas for that. Uh, we come up with themes for the year. We come up with a whole bunch of other different marketing things that we can do for the CRNA uh, career. And uh, I like to play my Xbox. 
So I play video games too. I do some normal stuff. Uh, and what else? So hiking. I, I, I would say that I would try and hang out with friends, but in the past year of 2020, that's not happened. That's like a rare occurrence that I hang out with anybody. But uh, eventually, again, I will hang out with people and, you know, go travel and have fun again. I, I used to do a big trip like once a year and try and go to Europe or Spain or, you know, somewhere I would try and go and travel and see somewhere new. Yeah, based off your YouTube channel, it seems like you're really big on education. So what are some like like tips or some words of wisdom you could give to somebody that's starting CRNA school or maybe struggling or even like, someone that's kind of on the fence of joining, of like becoming a CRNA, what kind of uh, like characteristic traits kind of follow suit uh, for CRNAs? Hmm. I would say that a lot of people are type A personalities in anesthesia. Very meticulous, very um, organized. You will find that, you'll find the exception here or there that where you'll run across somebody and you're thinking this, this person is not a type A personality. But in general, I will say that is a true stereotype. Um, I would say if you're looking to go into anesthesia, the, the biggest thing that people, when they reach out to me for mentorship or assistance, trying to get into CRNA school or planning for it later on, the problem that I run into with them is when they were 19, 20, 21 and taking their microbiology, anatomy, physiology, one and two, gen, chem, these types of courses, they didn't take them seriously. They took them, um, you know, kind of haphazard, made B's and C's in them. And now they're 26. They're practicing as an ICU nurse, hoping to get a CRNA school. And sadly, their GPA, their science GPA is holding them back from getting into a program because CRNA programs are heavily um, competitive, very, very, very competitive. So if you don't have, um, I'm not saying you need a 4.0 because that's not true. You don't need a 4.0. I had a 3.34 overall cumulative GPA, including all my nursing school classes and stuff. But I did have a 4.0 science GPA. And I did take an extra course in undergrad. I took a human dissection course as an elective uh, that I made an A in as well in undergrad. So I did certain things. Uh, at that time, I was doing it to prepare for med school later on, but it helped me out to get into CRNA school. And a lot of students who get in, you will find if their cumulative GPA isn't a 4.0, they at least have like solid A's and maybe one or two B's in their sciences. So don't mess around with your science courses, your core sciences. Don't stress as much about your your nursing school classes because your nursing school classes are not going to be a good reflection of what your CRNA school program will be like. Your CRNA school program will be much more similar to your core sciences. So they're going to look at your core sciences and see how did you how did you do in these courses and are you going to be able to handle these difficult sciences in grad school? Yeah, like for for me, nursing school, I was um, definitely a C student in nursing school. But like um, pre-nursing school, all my science classes, I always loved science. I always liked chemistry. Um, mm-hmm. I always liked microbiology. Like you said, like those were always my A classes. Like I always got A's in those. But nursing school, I, I don't know what it was about nursing school. I just always got C's for some reason. Maybe a B, B here and there. So that's, that's very good to hear because, right. you know, when you're saying like, you know, it's very competitive and it's based on your GPA, but then you're like saying GPA matters more about the science. That kind of gives me a little bit more, more, uh, more heart if I Definitely. were to be, be a CRNA. Definitely. And so there's so like many... A, there's so many aspects to getting into the program. That's why I offer those, those mock interviews and I go through the whole resume critique and stuff for CRNA students because there are so many different avenues of, and, and aspects they look at to accept students for. And just 
one of them is the GPA. So don't get too fixated. If your GPA is not amazing, you, there's a lot of other areas you can focus on. So, okay, this is some YouTube promotion here. What do you do, do on your channel? Like for the uh, most part, so, I know you do a lot of teaching, but can you go a little bit, little bit more in depth? Yeah, of course. So I, I post weekly, usually on Mondays mornings, um, about something related to anesthesia, nursing, healthcare, um, a various topic. And honestly, they just come to me as what's interesting to me in that time. It's not any like I don't I don't have like a hired marketing manager or anything yeah. who comes up with ideas for me. I literally just occasionally will be sitting there on the couch watching TV. I'll be like, you know what? I need to do a video about CRNA and independent practice. So that's going to be, and you know what? My buddy, Joe Rodriguez, he owns a CRNA only. He owns a couple practices in Phoenix. So I'm going to call him up and see if he'll, you know, do a video with me on zoom. And that's, that's how next week's video gets posted. Um, so it's, it's very just kind of candid off the cuff. What I find interesting. I don't like to make content that's just, I did for an algorithm or I did, you know, for just promotion purposes or something. I usually turn any of those offers down. Um, So yeah, that's mostly what my videos are about. It kind of, it can be uh, candid and random, but I feel like they always have some kind of vein of behind the scenes information about the career. And, And it keeps you authentic. I actually thought about a question. Maybe you made a video about it. So how has COVID affected like your profession, man? Like, cause I know like the OR was closed at one point. Like, were you like still working full time? Did you get a, you know, pay cut? Were you part time? So when COVID first hit, they canceled elective surgeries across the nation. It was like a mandatory thing. You had to stop elective cases because you would be exposing healthy patients to an environment that could have COVID in it in the hospital. Um, so as an anesthesia provider, I mean, we're a service industry for surgery primarily. And if all of those things are canceled, you are looking at a lot of us being furloughed, which is what happened to a lot of anesthesia providers. First time in the history of our profession, I think we've ever seen a risk of us not being a hundred percent fully employed all the time. Now it didn't last long and it didn't happen to all of us. I wasn't, I was not, um, Luckily for me, I was being uh, credentialed at another facility already. Credentialing is the whole process where you get onboarded at a facility and get uh, you're, you're allowed through the medical office to practice in their facility. And it takes months usually for that process to happen. I had been processed at another facility that was in desperate need at the time. So the, my primary position did say, hey, we don't need anybody right now and we're, we're not having any surgeries. And so we're cutting back on everybody. But luckily, the other position I was coming into said, we do need you. We're still desperately short. Can you come here? So for me personally, I continue to work pretty much 40 hours a week, even somewhat over that uh, throughout the whole past year. But I do know some people, um, some of my friends who did have their hours reduced. And we're told like, hey, we're, we're, you're only gonna be working 28 hours a week for the next two months. Um, and we're gonna you know, reduce your salary in accordance to that for a couple of months. So that was not a great time for most anesthesia providers. Damn, that's rough, yeah, super rough. I mean, luckily as nurses, you know, we hours were never cut. If anything, we had to work yeah. extra hours. The ICU was more. a gold mine, if you think about mm-hmm. it from a financial standpoint, like they just, Every single day I work, they're asking us if we want to come to work. And yeah. we're travel nurses, so we don't get bonuses. But literally, like, they're getting 
five hundred dollar bonuses, just lashing them out for people to just to come in and pick up. Like, yeah, if you played your cards smart in in twenty twenty as a nurse, you could have made some money. Not like working as a staff job and these travel contracts. If you've done four weeks here, four weeks there, especially in the peak of COVID, like people are probably like could take off a year or two off of work now just yeah. by the money they made. Yeah. Definitely, yeah. The 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 money. I mean, I I was hearing eight thousand dollars a week and numbers like that for. Uh, gross income. Uh, now, I think these were like 60 plus hour contracts they were doing in like multiple days in a row and things like that. But uh, but yeah, I mean, that was amazing income to make. Yeah, definitely. Jason, it's been a pleasure, man. We really appreciated this interview. Yeah, it's been great talking to you guys. Uh, I'm going to have to tune in more and see what you guys are doing in the future now. Yeah, let us know where, where we can find you. If whoever wants to check out your YouTube channel or the gram, or if you got a Discord, Telegram, what you got? Uh, no Discord or Telegram. Uh, you can find me on Instagram. It's BoltCRNA over there. And then it's also on YouTube, BoltCRNA. And there's a Facebook group that I'm not incredibly active in, but I'm trying to get better at. And it's BoltCRNA as well. So BoltCRNA everywhere. That, that makes three of us. We have a Facebook group too that we're, we're trying to be more active <laughs> in, but it just always falls yeah. behind. So yeah. we know the struggle. Yeah. Time, man. Time. Dr. Jason Definitely. Bolt, appreciate you being on, man. Of course. Yeah. Thank you guys for having me on. Thank you so much. See you guys next Friday. Guys.